Chapter Twenty of Grace Harlowe's Problem by Jessie Graham Flower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, The Awakening. The sword which hung over poor Grace's head still dangled threateningly above her when she left Overton for Oakdale on her Easter vacation. Miss Wharton had made no sign. Whether she had for the time being forgotten her words of that unhappy morning of several weeks past, or was coolly taking her own time in the matter, well aware of the discomfort of her victims, Grace could not know. She determined to lay aside all bitterness of spirit and lend herself to commemorate the anniversary of the first Easter with a reverent and open mind. But there was one ghost which she could not lay, and that was the memory of Tom Gray's face as he said good-bye to her on that memorable rainy afternoon. Just when it began to haunt her, Grace could scarcely tell. She knew only that Tom's farewell letter had awakened in her mind a curious sense of loss that made her wish he had not cut himself off from her so completely. When on their last afternoon together he had pleaded so earnestly for her love, Grace had been proudly triumphant in the successful accomplishment of what she believed to be her life-work. From the lofty pinnacle of achievement she had looked down on Tom pityingly, but with no adequate realisation of what she had caused him to suffer. It was not until she herself had been called upon to prepare to give up that which meant most to her in life that she began to appreciate dimly what it must have cost Tom Gray to put aside his hopes of years and go away to forget. A belated sympathy for her girlhood friend sprang to life in her heart, and in the weeks of suspense that preceded her return to Oakdale for Easter, she found herself thinking of him frequently. She wondered if he were well, and tried to imagine him in his new and dangerous environment. She began to cherish a secret hope that despite his belief that silence between them was best, he would write to her. Her holiday promised to be a little lonely as far as her friends were concerned. Mrs. Gray had gone to New York City to spend Easter with the Nesbits. Nora and Hippy had gone to visit Jessica and Reddy in their Chicago home. Anne and David were in New York. Eleanor Savelli was in Italy. Even Marion Barber, Eva Allen and Julia Crosby had married and gone their separate ways. Of the eight originals plus two, and of the old sorority, the Phi Sigma Tau, she was the only one left in Oakdale. To be sure, she had plenty of invitations to spend Easter with her chums and her many friends, but it was a sacred obligation with her always to be at home during the Easter holidays. She was quite content to do this, and yet even her father's and mother's love could not quite still the longing for the gay voices of those dear ones with whom she had kept pace for so long. There was one source of consolation, however, which during the first days at home she had quite overlooked and that source was none other than Anna May and Elizabeth Angerell. The two little girls had by no means overlooked the fact that their Miss Harlowe was the very nicest person in the whole world except Papa and Mamma, and proceeded to monopolise her whenever the opportunity offered itself. Grace went for long walks with them. She helped them dress their dolls and ran races and played games with them in their big sunny garden. She initiated them into the mysteries of making fudge and penachy, while they obligingly taught her ten different ways they knew of skipping the rope and how to make raffia baskets. 
They followed her about like two adoring, persistent little shadows, until imbued by their carefree spirit of childhood, Grace, in a measure, forgot her woes and joined in their innocent fun with hearty good will. "'Really, Grace, I hardly know which is older, you or Anna May,' smiled her mother one afternoon as Grace came bounding into the living room with, "'Mother, do you know where my blue sweater is?' Anna May and Elizabeth and I are going for a walk as far as the old omnibus house. It is hanging in that closet off the sewing room, returned her mother. Thank you. Dropping a hasty kiss on her mother's cheek, Grace was off. Miss Harlowe watched her go down the walk, holding a hand of each girl with wistful eyes. Grace had not been at home three days before her mother divined that all was not well with her beloved daughter. Yet to ask questions was not her way. Whatever Grace's cross might be, she knew that in time Grace would confide in her. On the way to the omnibus house, Grace was as gay and buoyant as her two little friends. It was not until they reached there, and Anna May and Elizabeth had run off to the nearest tree to watch a pair of birds which were building a nest and keeping up a great chirping meanwhile, that a frightful feeling of loneliness swept over Grace. She sat down on the worn stone steps, sadly thinking of Tom Gray and the good times the eight originals had had at this favourite haunt. But why did the memory of Tom Gray continue to haunt her? Grace gave her shoulders an impatient twitch. How foolish she was to allow herself to grow retrospective over Tom. She had deliberately sent him away because she did not, nor never could, love him. Still she wished that the memory of him would not intrude upon her thoughts so constantly. It's only because it's associated with the good times the eight originals have had, she tried to tell herself. But deep in her heart was born a strange fear that she fought against naming or recognising. After having watched the noisy but successful builders to their heart's content, the children ran over to where Grace sat and challenged her to a game of tag. But she was in no mood for play and suggested they had better be starting home. She felt that she could not endure for another instant this house of memories. She tried to assume the joyous air with which she had started out, but even the two little girls were not slow to perceive that their dear Miss Harlowe didn't look as happy as when they had begun their walk. "'I think we'd better go and see her tomorrow morning and take her a present,' decided Anna May, after Grace had left them at their own gates. "'She laughed like everything when we started on our walk.' but she looked pretty sad when we were coming back and didn't say hardly a thing. I'm going to give her my bottle of grape juice that Mother made specially for me. I guess I'll give her that pen wiper I made. It's ever so pretty. Elizabeth was not to be outdone in generosity. We'll take Snowball's new white puppy to show her, planned Anna May. She hasn't seen it yet, and a real French poodle puppy is too cute for anything. "'And we'll sing that new verse we learned in school for her,' added Elizabeth. True to their word, the next morning, the two little girls marched up to the Harlow's front door laden with their gifts. Anna May bore with proud carefulness the cherished bottle of grape juice, while Elizabeth cuddled a fat white ball in her arms, the pen wiper lying like a little blanket on the puppy's back. "'We came to call as soon as we could this morning,' "'Because we thought you looked sad yesterday,' was Anna May's salutation as Grace opened the door. "'Here's a bottle of grape-juice. Mother made it specially for me, but I want you to have it,' the child said. Grace ushered her guests into the living room. 
I hope you'll take this pen-wiper, too. I cut it out and sewed it and everything, burst forth Elizabeth, holding out her offering. I hope you'll always use it when you write letters. Thank you, girls. You're both very good to me, smiled Grace, and I'm so glad to see you this morning. We thought you would be, returned Anna May calmly. We brought Snowball's puppy to show you. We named him this morning for a perfectly splendid person that we know. You know him, too. The puppy's name is Thomas. That's Mr. Gray's real name, isn't it? Put in Elizabeth anxiously. Everyone calls him Tom, but Thomas sounds nicer. Don't you think it does? We like Mr. Gray better than any grown-up man we know, confided Anna May enthusiastically. He's the handsomest, nicest person ever was. Do you think he'd be pleased to have us name our puppy after him? I'm sure he would. Grace stifled her desire to laugh if she took the fluffy white ball in her arms and stroked the tiny head. Then the amused look left her eyes. Perhaps Tom would never know of his little white namesake. He might never come back from South America. Suppose she were never to hear of him again. In the past she had, during moments of vexation toward him, almost wished it. But of a sudden it dawned upon her that she would give much to look into his honest grey eyes again and feel the clasp of his strong, friendly hand. "'Miss Harlowe, shall we sing for you?' Anna May wisely noted that Miss Harlowe had begun to look sad again. "'We learned such a pretty new song in school,' put in Elizabeth. "'Anna May can play it on the piano, too. Would you like us to sing it, Miss Harlowe?' "'Yes, do sing it,' urged Grace, but her thoughts were far from her obliging visitors. The children trotted over to the piano, and after a full start or two, Anna May played the opening bars of the song. Then the two childish voices rang out. The years at the spring and days at the morn, mornings at seven, the hillsides dew-pearled, the larks on the wing, the snails on the thorn, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. Grace listened with a sinking heart. The joy of Browning's exquisite lines from Pippa Passes cut into her very soul. All was not right with her world. Everything had gone wrong. She had chosen work instead of love, and what had it brought her? She had believed that in rejecting Tom's love for her work, she had definitely and forever solved her problem. Now it confronted her afresh. She understood too well the meaning of that strange fear which had obsessed her ever since her return home. Now she knew why the memory of Tom had so persistently haunted her, and why her friendly interest in his welfare had grown to be a heavy anxiety as to whether all was well with him. Wholly against her will, she had done that which she had insisted she could never do. She had fallen in love with Tom, but her awakening had come too late. Tom had gone away to forget her. He would never know that she loved him, for she could never, never tell him. On the night of Jessica's wedding, when they had strolled up the walk to the house in the moonlight, he had said with an air of conviction, which then made her smile, that there would come a time when even work could not crowd out love. His prophecy had come true, but it meant nothing to either she or Tom now, for it had come true too late. End of chapter 20